The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Karen Spriggs. I am a registered nurse and clinical specialist with Coloplast. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Mary Ellen Kelly. Dr. Mary Ellen Kelly is an assistant professor at Duke University and has been a pediatric nurse practitioner in urology since 2010. She obtained her MSN from Columbia University, Master's in Health Science Clinical Research from Duke University, and her DNP from the University of Pittsburgh. Currently, she is funded by the NIH's NIDDK and NICHD centers, as well as the CDC for ongoing clinical and translational research related to spina bifida care and lower urinary tract conditions in children, namely overactive bladder, urinary tract infections, neurogenic bladder, and bowel. She is a manuscript reviewer for eight journals and has over 20 publications. She sits on the Research Advisory Council for the Spina Bifida Association, is an executive board member of the Pediatric Urology Nurses and Specialist Society, PUNS, and represents PUNS as an editor for the Journal of Pediatric Urology. Our topic today is the Spina Bifida Community-Centered Spina Bifida Research Agenda. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. So Dr. Mary Ellen Kelly, please explain to our audience what spina bifida is. Spina bifida is the most common permanently disabling congenital defect that impacts multiple organ systems that's compatible with life. It's estimated that there's over 160,000 Americans currently living with spina bifida, and actually the majority of those are adults. Some of the consequences of spina bifida include hydrocephalus, which is like a swelling or fluid accumulation in the brain, urinary and fecal incontinence, renal failure, intellectual disability, impaired mobility, and premature death. More importantly than that, maybe, um, it also has a big impact on quality of life of these individuals. And we've actually measured this, and they have about a 34% reduction in their quality of life compared to individuals who don't have spina bifida. Since I know we're going to be focusing on kind of the bowel and bowel dysfunction, I just want to add that we call this neurogenic bowel dysfunction, and it's really kind of a cluster of chronic constipation and or fecal incontinence, so a combination of any of that. And it's actually experienced by over 80% of the individuals who have spina bifida. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that background. So today we're focusing on the community-centered spina bifida research agenda. But first, where did the spina bifida market research come from with it, within this article? We were really excited that this has kind of finally taken place because it's been in the making really since about 2016. Um, it's amazing how long sometimes things can take to um, really be fulfilled. So back in 2016, the Spina Bifida Association created um, 
the spina bifida guidelines. And from there, we identified kind of gaps in our guidelines and kind of the research that's out there for spina bifida. And in total, there were 250 gaps that were identified, which was a lot. <laughs> so we went ahead and these were analyzed and kind of grouped by themes. And we got down to 27 categories. And we sent those 27 categories out through a marketing survey to individuals with spina bifida, like adults with spina bifida, as well as parents or care partners of both adults and children with spina bifida, and basically had them rank them. Like, what is really the most important to you in your life um, or your child's life? And once we got those rankings, we went ahead and kind of said, okay, these are the priorities to the community, right? Because as researchers and clinicians, I have what I think a priority is, and that might not always be aligned with the reality of those who have spina bifida. So we really wanted to make this community-centered. Once we kind of had these priorities ranked, we went ahead and did um, some focus groups, and the focus groups were with similar a similar population, both adults with spina bifida and care partners of individuals, as well as members of the Spina Bifida Association. And we kind of came up with research questions to kind of inform these gaps and these priority areas. The Spina Bifida Association then created its first research advisory council. So they kind of selected and elected individuals from the community. So it's really unique. I think they did a great job. We have epidemiologists, there's clinicians, there's clinical researchers, health science researchers, again, lots of individuals themselves who have spina bifida that both are in the medical field and are not, as well as parents um, and members of the community. So it's a really big kind of stakeholder group that they've accumulated. Um, and so we kind of put these research advisory council with the focus groups and had this beautiful marriage of all of our priorities and kind of came up with the top um, research questions that really need to be tackled by anybody doing spina bifida research um, that are the priorities to clinicians, researchers, and the community. That's awesome. So you really, you guys really engaged the community overall in this research agenda. So what were the topics that you covered in the spina bifida research agenda? Yeah, so it's like a drum roll, right? <laughs> what did we, what came to the top? Um, there were five main groups right now that we're working within. Um, and so each of these groups are kind of have their own focus population or focus group of individuals working towards them. And one of them is bowel continence. One is mental. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, near and dear to my heart, too. Next is mental health. Then we have transitioning to adult care. That's uh, so important for the so, patients that are going into adult populations. Yeah, it really is. And it's amazing that it's become a problem in a way because not that long ago, we didn't expect individuals with spina bifida to make it into adulthood or very far into adulthood. Thankfully now, I mean, they're living just as long as everybody else. So it's a good problem to have, but man, is it a problem. Right, because we just don't have the uh, clinicians to take care of these patients, these adult patients with spina bifida. Yeah, the clinicians weren't trained in them. So I think, and I could be incorrect in the number, but not by much. There's only about 10 clinics, I think, in the whole country wow. who care for adult spina bifida patients. So there is a real big healthcare cliff, we call it, from pediatrics into adults. So this transition piece is big. The fourth one we have is urinary incontinence. Again, I do pediatric urology, so also near and dear to my heart. 
And the last one is weight management and nutrition. Excellent. So what did the parents of children under the age of 18 rate as the top three issues for their children? So the parents were pretty consistent. Bowel incontinence, bladder incontinence, and independence. Uh, And you'll notice independence wasn't one of those top five categories we just mentioned. Instead, what we did is independence is really thread through each one of those. You need an element of independence to be able to transition to adult care, um, independence, you know, for your urinary and bowel programs. So we just kind of added that to all of the top five priority areas. And what about the parents of adult children? What did they rate as their top three issues? No surprise. <laughs> Finding adult providers. Of course. Yeah. So uh, the parents are having trouble helping their children to find adult providers who understand and are comfortable treating spina bifida. The second thing was, again, bowel incontinence. And the third thing is independence. So that kind of goes hand in hand, I think. Yes. And what did the adult patients with spina bifida rate as their top three issues? It was interesting because this is rather similar to everybody else's three issues. So similar to the parents of adults, they the adults themselves ranked highest that they need help finding adult providers who treat spina bifida. Their second one is bowel incontinence. So that hit in every category in the top yeah. three. Um, and third is managing weight and nutrition. Excellent. And what surprised you most with these results? It was interesting that bowel incontinence um, was across all groups. I'd say that's not necessarily surprising, but it was eye-opening in the sense that as a clinician, man, did that tell us we're really not doing a good job. If every category is ranking that as one of their top three priority areas, I think it really opened the eyes of us as clinicians, wow, we really, really need to shift our focus. We are not, you know, helping our patients as much as we want to be in this group. And, um, you know, we know that having neurogenic bowel and kind of just any aspect of it, whether it's the constipation piece or the fecal incontinence, we've linked that that is related in kids to decreased school attendance, right? They have a lot more absences. Yes. Um, there's increased rates of depression, uh, decreased self-esteem, increased rates of bullying in kids. Like it's associated with a lot of quality of life aspects. So it's not surprising it's kind of ranked so highly. And in adults, it's linked to um, underemployment or unemployment, as well as being unable to kind of finish you know, your higher education. So colleges or, or tech schools. So it has a huge impact. So I guess yes. it's not surprising it was ranked, but eye-opening for all of us. Yes, yes. I I can imagine, you know, I mean, dealing with um, the patients that we deal with on a daily basis, bowel is such an issue for them. And if they don't know about the newer treatment options for them, you know, they're really not getting the best care that they can get. So it's so great to have folks like you out in the community that are so involved in educating the other people in the community about what is necessary for these patients to get the care that they deserve. And Karen, if I can add to that too, um, you know, one of the other things I think is interesting was how the parents or the care partners kind of chimed in saying, hey, this is an issue for us. Fighting the providers is an issue for us because there's a big burden on um, the care partners that I think sometimes we don't discuss, especially when it comes to the bowel regimens, et cetera, because 
less than like 25% of people with spina bifida can actually carry out their own bowel regimens without the assistance of somebody else. So that's a big burden beyond, you know, the typical childhood age when you would expect a parent to kind of be helping with all these things and find other adults, um, whether it's a husband, a partner, a wife, a parent, whomever, a paid caregiver, whatever it is to help. But that's a whole nother kind of caregiver burden that sometimes goes unrecognized. Yes. And you just think about these children as they transition and they want to go to sleepaway camps. They want to go to college. They want to be independent and live on their own. They don't want to live with their parents for the rest of their lives. So it's so important and impactful for these patients to be able to do bowel programs, especially on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. What is the Spina Bifida Association doing to facilitate change for these issues? You know, I got to give Spina Bifida Association all the kudos in the world. They have been working so hard, again, since, you know, they sent the guidelines out in 2016. And that process probably began in 2014. You know, they have really been working to really highlight the needs of the community that they're representing. And I think the first thing they're doing to facilitate is they've started this process, right? They got the research agenda out there. When we kicked off the research agenda Um, I believe it was last November, perhaps, we had a meeting um, and it was a worldwide like meeting, a global meeting of anybody doing research in spina bifida. And we had over 250 participants on this Zoom call. It was the biggest Zoom call. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The the number was very high, uh, very small faces. It was amazing. There were people from, you know, the Hydrocephalus Foundation in Canada. There were members of the NIH. We had program officers. We had funding agencies. There were uh, members of Coloplast, I believe, on there. We had so many stakeholders who showed up just because the SBA, the Spine Bifida Association, kind of said, hey, we have this new research agenda. We want to share it with anybody. And we had such an amazing showing of committed people. And they took that meeting and rolled with it, right? They kind of said, here's our priorities, here's what we want to do, and immediately got people coordinated and working. So they created subgroups right from that meeting of individuals, again, in all these kind of stakeholder positions and put them together and said, please go start working on these projects in managing weight and nutrition. And a whole group of people started meeting at that meeting. It was several hours long. And we still have those groups going. So their research advisory committee that they formed is really now spearheading research in every one of these priority areas. And the other thing I want to give them real credit for is, you know, they have this saying, and I want to get it right, nothing about us without us. Oh, I think that I think I have that right. Sarah Sturry, the CEO there, would, would tell me if I was wrong. Nothing about us without us. And that's meant, you know, for the spina bifida community. So they have been so impactful in making sure that any research that's happening or being planned is really involving members of the SBA, um, the Adult Advisory Committee, you know, surveying people with spina bifida, their care partners. They're really making sure that everything is really community engaged, which is novel. I don't think a lot of kind of nonprofit organizations like that are doing that. They're really getting involved, which is amazing. That is amazing. And I know that they also do that teal on the hill. So that's also a really amazing juncture that they have to hopefully help get the awareness to the people in Washington, D.C., basically. So, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully more and more of that will, you know, 
come about and they'll understand how much more funding and whatever else needs to be done for these pa- for this patient population. Yeah, I mean, they're huge advocates for funding for like the National Spina Bifida Patient Registry uh, run from the CDC, which is, you know, obviously a huge, the biggest registry we have for individuals with spina bifida. And they always are advocating for increased funding for that. And I've participated on Teal on the Hill. It's a great advocacy event. You get to go, well, it used to be in person. Now it's virtual. And now I think it might be going back to a hybrid. But when it was in person, we went to D.C. and we met with all the Congress individuals from your community and kind of were like, hey, get on the Spina Bifida Caucus. Like, here's what we need for wheelchair and mobilities. That's different bills that are already running. And like, we need your support for this. And it was a really neat opportunity because you know, you were really advocating for policy change. We were with the SBA. We had constituents. I had a couple patients actually with me and their families. It was a really cool event. So, yeah, that's amazing. And I know that, you know, one of the big things that they work on, too, is just even more help in the community with, you know, wheelchair access, Ubers and lifts and cabs whatever to have the wheelchair lifts available for these different things. So I know that it's 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 still a work in progress, right? But you know, they're certainly trying to get in going to the right direction. You know, we have the ramps or whatever going up to buildings and things of that nature, but you know, we don't think through I feel we don't think through a lot of these things with transportation and whatever else goes along with needing, you know, with being in a wheelchair. So, yep. That's excellent. Very true. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.